So we're in Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 through chapter 4, verse 7. I would encourage you to find that passage in your Bible or your smartphone or whatever you use for a text. We'll be following along today. Amanda was a teenage girl living in Nebraska, and Amanda started attending a local youth group at a church nearby. Amanda came from a very abusive family, and uh, it was so bad that the state of Nebraska took her from her biological parents. John and Lori Foote were working with the youth group that Amanda had started attending. When the state removed Amanda from her home, John and Lori invited Amanda to come and live um, with them. John and Lori had two sons also, and uh, one of those sons was actually the very same age as Amanda. Amanda has been a part of the foot family ever since they took her into their home. In fact, in August of 2009, John and Lori Foote made a giant commitment along with their two sons, and they illegally adopted Amanda as their daughter at the age of 22. Her name was legally changed. She got a new birth certificate. John and Lori now have uh, three legal heirs instead of just two. Amanda has a new family with new parents and new brothers. And in Galatians chapter 3, one of the things we're going to see is just like Amanda, when you placed your faith in Christ, you got a new family and a new name, and a new identity, and you became an heir also of the wealthiest estate in the world. And you have the same spiritual DNA as the Father because the Father sent His Spirit to live in you and to change you and to give you something like Him. And that happened when you were born again, and now the Holy Spirit lives in you. So, that's what our passage is about today in Galatians chapter 3. We're going to begin in verses uh, 26 through 29, and just let me read those for us as we start here. Uh, Galatians chapter 3, verse 26, and the Apostle Paul writes to the Galatian churches, he says, You are all sons of God. And if you're reading in the newest NIV, it says you're children of God. I'm going to talk about that in just a minute. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seeds and heirs according to the promise. So let's, let's talk that through. I want to encourage you to follow uh, on your outlines And our very first point is is that faith in Christ connects us to the promises of God. And this is a a theme that we've seen already in the book of Galatians. Faith in Christ connects us to the promises of God. But Paul isn't done here. He has more to say about this, and so we're going to look at it. Verse 26, our faith in Christ changes our relationship with God. Now here's how the new NIV 
reads, So in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. And that is an attempt on the part of the translators of the new, newest version of the NIV, the New International Version, to be a little more sensitive to our culture today in the male-female concerns. The, uh, in the original language, it's the word son. It's huios instead of techna, which is children. They're different, and they're very different in what Paul has to say here. So I'm a little disappointed that the translators changed that in the newest version of the NIV. And we're going to see what the significance of that is as we go through it. But what I want to say is, verse 26, So in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God. This is not a male-female thing. This is not about masculinity in any way. It's about a position of inheritance. And it's, a, it's an important concept. It's a concept of sonship. Paul is going to develop that in this passage. So please be patient and let's talk that through. This is not a masculine concern here. This applies both to male and female. Please see that. Now, um, it is true that when you place your faith in Christ, you become a part of God's family. Probably a better passage that shows that is John 1.12. And uh, the, the Apostle John writes these words. He says, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name. By the way, that's how you receive him, is you believe. Actually, receiving is a result of believing. Believed in his name, Jesus Christ. He gave the right to become children of God. And that's that word techna, and it means children. It refers to family. And, and that's where when we place our faith in Christ... You and I become brothers and sisters, and God is our Father. And in a very real sense, in a technical sense, if you are not a child of God, um, you, you uh, cannot have eternal life unless you're in God's family. Uh, you must be a child of God, and the only way a person can become a child of God is by faith in Jesus Christ. There's two concepts. One's children. One is Sonship, the son of God, a son of God. Verse 27, our faith in Christ connects us to the living body of Christ, the church. Look at verse 27. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Now, um, as I understand this passage, this is talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It is not talking about water baptism. And let's walk it through. One of the things here is because I think um, uh, just being baptized in water is not uh, about clothing yourself with Christ. Um, but let, let me uh, see if I can explain this and, and, and hopefully uh, give some insight. Uh, to be baptized by the Holy Spirit is the work of God when he takes you out of the world and places you into the spiritual body of Christ. It is a work of God. It is not something that I do. It is something God does. When I placed my faith in Christ, back in the old days, September 29th, 1974, at 4.30 in the morning, God did a work in my life. And the first thing, he, he took me out of the world and he put me into the body of Christ. There's a whole lot of good things that happen when that happens. And... Um, 
this is the work of God that united me to Christ. That's how I got in Christ. That's how I became united with Christ. And that's how every believer gets in Christ, united with Christ, joined with Christ. And the key concept in baptism for water baptism or baptism by the Holy Spirit, the key concept is identification. Because uh, I used to identify with the world, but when I placed my faith in Christ, I now identify with Christ. I am in Christ, and I'm in his body, and I get all the rights and benefits that go with that, and we're going to unfold that as we go here. And... Um, That's identification. And we're going to see, too, it's death, burial, and resurrection. Jesus died. He was buried. He was raised again. And when I uh, was baptized by the Holy Spirit, when he placed me into the body of Christ, there was a concept here, and we're going to develop that, about death, burial, and resurrection. I identify with Jesus. And I get the benefits, too. Raised is a good one. Now, if, if you've been baptized, at least at the bridge, you know that Water baptism is a picture of this baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's a picture. So that when a person uh, is baptized, they're identifying publicly with Jesus Christ and his body. And so uh, when someone is baptized, uh, at least by immersion, they they go into the water and they identify with Jesus' death and his burial. When they come out of the water, they identify with being raised to a new life. It's a picture of being born again, new life. And they're both important concepts. One is a spiritual reality. One is a picture. They're both important. Jesus commanded us to be baptized And I would just say, if you haven't been baptized as a follower of Christ, that you should very seriously consider it to identify publicly with Jesus and his followers, the church. Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 and 13 pick up on this concept. And uh, Paul says, just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all in its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. So, Paul is using the human body, many parts, one body. The same thing is true, he says, about the church, the body of Christ, the spiritual body of Christ. There are many different people, and they make up as many parts of the body, but there's still only one body of Christ. Verse 13, for we were all baptized by one spirit. Very clearly, baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, one of the things I want to say here is this is not a spiritually elite group. There there are uh, parts of the Christian church, the the charismatic perspective, the Pentecostal perspective that would teach that Christians need a, a higher level of spirituality. They need to be baptized by the Holy Spirit as if it is a second work of God, salvation being the first, baptism of the Holy Spirit being second, with the idea that somehow you get more power from God if you're baptized in the Holy Spirit. Not so. The Corinthian church, by the way, was the most carnal or worldly church in the New Testament. They were not hyper-spiritual. They were unique and had their own difficulties. Um, He says, 
We were all baptized. Every one of the Corinthian believers had been baptized by the Holy Spirit, whether they were a brand new believer, whether they'd been a believer for a few years, even the ones who weren't walking with God. If they were true believers, they had been baptized by the Spirit. So as to form one body, the church, whether Jews or Gentiles, slaves or free, we were all given one spirit to drink. This concept of being immersed in the, in, the, in the body of Christ, surrounded by the body of Christ, totally identifying with the body of Christ. Another important passage is Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 8. And I want you, this is just a key concept in the New Testament. There's a lot of passages about it. It's not an easy one to understand. It's important for us, okay? Romans chapter 6. Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? I believe he's talking about baptism of the Holy Spirit. He's talking about the work of God. When God took us out of the, the world and he placed us into the body of Christ. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. And what we see here is a picture This is what we use as a picture for water baptism. This is not water baptism. It's baptism of the Holy Spirit, and it's a picture. When a person goes into the water, they identify with Jesus' death and burial, come out of the water, raised to a new life, a picture of being born again. Next slide. For if we've been united with him, how did we get united with him? Baptism of the Holy Spirit. And if you're not united with Christ... You're not a true believer, okay? For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified. How did that happen? It happened when we were baptized. We identified with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. He was crucified. We know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Does this remind you of any verse in the book of Galatians already? Yes, chapter 2, verse 20. I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Co-crucifixion. It's an important concept. Next slide. Now, if we've died with Christ, we believe that we'll also live with him. Live with him, not only in eternity, but now. Live now in the power of God, in the power of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't start at death. It starts when you believe, okay? So, verse 27, another concept from verse 27, our faith in Christ clothes us with the righteousness of Christ. Verse 27, for all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There's been a change when a person places their faith in Christ. When you place your faith in Christ, you were covered with with new spiritual clothing. So that when God looks at a person who has trusted Christ, he doesn't see you and all your past. It's what he sees is what you're covered with, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You have new clothing. It is the work of God. It's not something you did. It is something God did for you. You were naked and ashamed. 
And God covered you with a new clothing, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So that when God sees you, because, because you were taken out of the world and you were placed in Christ, you got all the benefits of being in Christ, including the righteousness of Christ. Um, this is uh, what we were like before. Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6. Uh, Isaiah describes a person be really before they um, have a right relationship with God. He says, All of us become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. And so when, we, uh, when a person tries to do good things in their own, in their own energy, in their own flesh, and we say, Oh God, look how good we are. Look how super religious we are. If we are not walking in the power of the Holy Spirit, it's like filthy rags. And so a person who has not yet placed their faith in Christ, no matter how religious they are, their works are like filthy rags in God's sight. But when a person is forgiven because they've placed their faith in Christ, what God sees is the clothing, the righteousness of Jesus. Verse 28, our faith in Christ changes our social status with God. And Paul says, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, God connects us uh, to Christ, his spiritual body. And when we're placed in Christ into his church, the body of Christ, um, there are no distinctions about value. Um, our value is not based on what other people think of us. Our value is placed on what God thinks of us. And he says there is no distinction in Christ. Our value comes from our new identity in Christ. What about the distinction of Jew and Gentile? This was really big in the first century. The Jews viewed themselves as uh, spiritually elite, um, that the the Gentiles were nothing, of no value, and that the Jews were super special. And um, then when it came to uh, slave owners and uh, slaves, there was a huge social distinction. And, you know, people who had servants often saw themselves as being um, superior, way more valuable, And what about male and female? Well, I'm sad to say in the first century, the female did not have a very high social standing. And uh, that's uh, a disgrace. There was a prayer uh, that, according to Josephus, a first century historian, that Jewish men sometimes prayed. And it went like this. I thank God that you have not made me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. That'd be kind of a hard person to live with, wouldn't it? And the point is, is that you matter to God. And in Christ, God sees everyone in Christ as equal value. God loves you. You matter. He's equipped you. And uh, he cares about your future. And you have an equal value, an equal standing before God. Next, our faith in Christ connects us to Abraham's heritage from Genesis to Revelation, verse 29. If you belong to Christ, 
Paul writes, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Um, We talked a lot about this last week. We talked about Abraham's seed or Abraham's offspring because God made a promise in Genesis 12, 15, 18, 22, and then he made promises to um, Isaac and Jacob, son and grandson of Abraham, and all these promises passed on to Abraham's descendants about how God would give him offspring and he would bless the world and that his, his family would become very large. And that was part of the promise. He says, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. There's a passage in uh, Hebrews chapter 11 that helps us understand a little bit about connecting to the promises. So Hebrews is about examples of people who live by faith, and they're sort of faith's hall of fame, and that's what Hebrews 11 is about. And so verse 11, and and by faith even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. She knew about God's promise. She struggled with it. She even laughed. But the bottom line was she trusted what God said. And so from this one man, Abraham, and he as good as dead, because he was like pretty old. He was not able to have children at his age. And so God had to do a miracle to prove his point, and God did the miracle. Abraham was as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, that was the promise, and as countless as the sand on the seashore. Next slide. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. So Abraham got promises, but he didn't get to see all the promises come to pass. And one of the things that we learned last week from Galatians chapter 3 was that Jesus Christ was the ultimate seed or offspring of Abraham. That's what God intended all along. There would be one that comes from Abraham that would ultimately fulfill the promises. And it, you know, it, it took hundreds of years for this to come about, to fulfill. Abraham died. He was a stranger and an alien. That's what Peter says of us. We're strangers. As followers of Christ, we're strangers and aliens on this earth because what? This is not our home. We are not home yet. We ought not expect this, our lives to be perfect. There is difficulty and struggle and pain and heartache now. This is not home. People who say such things, people who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. Uh, next slide. See, Abraham was a searcher. He, he was given a promise and he did a lot of searching to find the land, and to find all the things God was giving him because it was not established in his lifetime. He got to see some of the land. And it says, verse 15, if they had been thinking of a country they had left, they would have, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. They were looking for that perfect home, the one that we long for. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Abraham was searching for a city, 
for the perfect life. He was searching for heaven. He didn't know it. Heaven on earth. He, he, that's what he looked to God for. And God has prepared a city for them, for Abraham and his seed, his descendants, and those who believe in Jesus Christ get connected to the promises. You see, when you were baptized into Christ, you're connected with Christ, and the promises of God open up to you. And there are many. Where's that city? It's in Revelation chapter 21. It's an eternal city. It's called the New Jerusalem, and it doesn't exist yet. But when you get there, you will be home. Abraham will be there, and he will be home. Okay, that's 26 through 29, and now we're going to jump to chapter 4, and I think we can move right through this because this isn't nearly as detailed. It's important, but it's not nearly as detailed. The second point is that faith in Christ changes our status from being slaves to being privileged. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. This change was illustrated in the first century Roman society in verses 1 and 2. So Paul likes to take examples out of his own culture and uh, very helpful for his audience. Uh, verse 1, what Paul says, What I'm saying is this, as long as the heir is under age, he is no different from a slave, although he owns a whole estate. So we go back to the first century uh, Roman wealthy person, um, who can have servants and property. And let's say he has a son, a teenage son, and the teenage son is an heir in, to the estate. I mean, someday it's going to be his. And he really is, you know, because of his family, is an owner. But it's not his yet, okay? And so uh, we looked at this last time, um, he, but he can't have this inheritance until uh, it's legal, and it's not legal yet. His father is the one who will ter- determine it. Verse 2, the heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. The father got to pick the age for the teenage boy. Could be 15, could be 20, could be 25. When the father thought his son was ready to be an adult... And so uh, the son would have been subject to guardians and trustees. These were household servants. They weren't freed men. They were servants. And these servants had responsibilities in raising children. Um, They were to teach the children. They were to care for them. They were to uh, discipline these children. They were to impart ethics for these children. Um, They were to teach them social customs and manners. They were in charge of these kids. That was their job. That's all that they did. And um, until the time was appointed by the father. And when the father appointed the time and thought it was right, the son would be presented to the father. And the father would put on, this was a, a ceremony called Toga virilis. And the father would, would remove the outer garment of his son and he would place the toga virilis, this uh, new clothing that identified the son. 
as an adult. And everybody who saw this son after that knew he was an adult because of what he was wearing. And he was now legally an heir, and he was part owner of the, the estate. Verses 3 through 5, this change transformed our status from being slaves with no rights to being sons with full rights. And so Paul takes this first century illustration about the son who is going to be presented to his father for the toga virilis. Verse 3, so also when we were underage, we were slave in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. For the Galatians, it was their old life. They were in a slavery to sin, and they were living under the principles of the world. That's kind of a a vague concept. It's a very broad concept, and it basically um, refers to man's best attempt at living well. It includes... It would include the law of the Old Testament for the Jewish people. It would include philosophy and ethics that it's not necessarily aligned with the Bible. It would include man's common sense. It would include ideas that come from the book of Judges, like every man did what was right in his own eyes. That's the elementary principles of the world. Some of it is evil, and some people are trying to give it their best shot. Verse 4, but when the... But when the set time had fully come, the time that was set forth by the Father, when the Father was ready, God sent his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. This is a... When the the sovereign God of the universe was ready, he sent forth his Son. When the almighty God, the all-wise God, thought the time was right... He sent forth his son. Now, I'm going to take the message on December 27th, and I'm going to spend the whole time on verses 4 and 5 about what this meant. When the time was right, God sent forth his son. He was born of a woman. He was born of Mary. He was born under the law. We forget that sometimes when we read the Gospels, that Jesus lived under 613 commands of the Old Testament. And Jesus did it perfectly, and he fulfilled the law. And then he would die on the cross and pay the penalty for our sin. He became a curse for us, verse 5, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. God's purpose in sending his son at that right time was to redeem, was to, to buy back to pay the price, to redeem. Um, Very important concept in the New Testament. You know, Amanda Foote understood this concept of what it meant to be adopted into a family and to be able to receive all the rights and privileges thereof. She became an heir She became a family member. She was accepted. She was loved. She was provided guidance and care by this new family to to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. And again, sonship there, it's not about a male thing. It's, It's about a position of inheritance, and it's everybody's equal. 
male and female, no matter what your race, no matter what your ethnicity, no matter what your social, no matter what your income, no matter what your educational level, in Christ, everybody is equal. It's not about what other people think. It's about your identity in Christ and what God thinks. This concept of adoption is one that uh, I appreciated because my biological parents weren't ready to have a son. They weren't equipped to have a son. And they chose not to have a son. I'm grateful that they allowed me to be born. But there was a couple named Bill and Mildred Kellen who wanted to have a child. They wanted to have another child. And so they made a commitment to adopt me, and they had to go to a welfare agency, and they had to, that's what they called them back then, and um, they, they got a lawyer, and they paid the attorney fees, and they went through the whole process, and then one day they took me home. And they didn't know what they were getting into, because I was an expensive addition to their family. But I appreciate this concept of adoption. And when I placed my faith in Christ, I got this adoption thing really quick. And one of the things that my mother used to say to me about being adopted, and this, I just kind of, whenever I said I was adopted, I just kind of stuck my chest out a little bit further because she she told me when I was growing up that being adopted meant I was special, kind of meant I was a cut above the other kids. Because my mom and dad didn't have to take whatever they got. They got to pick me out. And when I would tell the neighborhood kids that I was adopted, I just sort of stood up a little bit taller. And um, the kids would say, Mom, he's adopted. They didn't know what to think of that, but I knew what to think. I was just a cut above the rest of the kids. Maybe not totally accurate, but that's what I thought. Verses 6 and 7, this change transformed our status from one of slavery to one of full inheritance. Verses 6 and 7. And Paul says, because you are his sons. And see, he's translating, they're translating it accurately here. He's not saying children. It's because you are his sons. Remember, this is a position of inheritance. It's not male or female here. God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. This is partial fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant of the promises of God. Um, When you placed your faith in Christ, God gave you the Holy Spirit to live in you permanently. And this is not about, do I feel the Holy Spirit today? If you have placed your faith in Christ truly and you're born again, he is there. He lives in you. God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, and the spirit calls out, Abba, Father. God put his Holy Spirit into you to put you into a very close relationship with the Father. In fact, he desires an intimate relationship with the Father. And a lot of you know that the word Abba is an Aramaic word, and it means father. It can mean daddy. It's personal, it's intimate, it's a close term. This is a term that Jesus used when he prayed to the Father. The Jewish man in the first century would not do that. In fact, when they heard Jesus praying, Abba, they got stood back and were a little judgmental of Jesus. But this Jesus just could cry out, Daddy, Father. 
And he taught his followers to pray. In fact, the Lord's Prayer, our Father in heaven, the word is Abba. And God's intention is, is that Holy Spirit in you bring you into a close, intimate, personal relationship with God. We talk about a personal relationship all the time. This is it. And this is a, the doctrinal issue here. It's about God giving you the Holy Spirit so th- and He cries out. If, if you're the real deal, a genuine follower of Christ, the Holy Spirit in you should be drawing you to get closer with God. And if you get tugged every once in a while, it's the Holy Spirit who'd like to guide you into a closer relationship with Christ. And this, this work of the Spirit is a, is a personal experience. When you feel close with God or you get excited, it's oftentimes the Holy Spirit that is uh, motivating you or guiding you or prompting you. And it's this uh, Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. Verse 7, so you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And I would rather say God's son. And since you are his son, God has made you also an heir. So I think verse 7 should be son and not child. Both work because people want to be sensitive to the male-female thing and make sure that females feel okay. And I hope you feel okay, but I want you to understand it's about the inheritance. It's not about maleness. Um, This uh, concept is also in Romans chapter 8, verses 9 through 11. And Paul writes... And so, you know, Paul writes the book of Galatians, and he expounds on the doctrine of justification by faith. And then he writes the Romans, and he just amplifies what he says in Galatians. He says a lot more in Romans, but it's a lot of the same concepts, only they're more extended. Verse 9, you, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but in the realm of the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. So having the Holy Spirit means you're connected with God. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, it means you're not connected with God. You don't have Christ. Genuine believer is connected to God through the Holy Spirit. Somebody who's not a genuine believer is not connected with God through the Holy Spirit. Next slide. But if Christ is in you, then even and the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. So yes, you can experience physical death, but you will live on if you have Christ. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of who lives in you. That's one of the reasons, a very important concept in the New Testament. It's called the resurrection of believers, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. One day your body, just like Jesus was raised, one day your body will be raised from the dead. Uh, Do we have one more slide? Is that it? Okay. The spirit you receive does not uh, make you slaves so that you live in fear. And you shouldn't live in fear. It doesn't make any difference what's going on in the world. You can be aware, you can be concerned, and you can pray. But you do not need to live in fear. Okay, 
God did not give you a spirit of fear. Um, Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. There it is again. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Next slide. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. So this message was entitled, Equal Rights, Equal Pay. This was not about politics. Um, This is more about privileges, equal rights. Uh, Paul says you have full rights, meaning you have equal standing before God. It's for all people who are believers. There are no race barriers. Um, It doesn't make any difference whether you are an American or a Syrian or an Iranian or a Vietnamese or a North Korean or German. It doesn't make any difference. There is no distinction in Christ for all of those who believe. This was also about equal pay. This was not about men's salaries or women's salaries. And I'm all for justice and women being paid the same as men. They do the same job. It's about an equal inheritance. It's about privileges. It's about gifts, the Holy Spirit. For example, uh, when you place your faith in Christ, you were all indwelled with Christ. You got the same benefit as everyone else. You were all sealed by the Holy Spirit. That's a mark. You all became citizens of heaven. You were all gifted by the Holy Spirit. You were all made children of God. You were all forgiven your sins. You were all given eternal life. You were all sanctified, meaning set apart for God for service. You were all made righteous, clothed with righteousness. You were all redeemed. And let me just suggest what some responsibilities for us who have these rights and privileges. We have a responsibility to unbelievers, those people who do not yet know Christ. We have a responsibility to live as ambassadors for Jesus Christ, to live in a way so that people can be reconciled to God because of us. We have a responsibility to believers. And I want you to think about people, believers that you don't like. There may be believers that you don't like at all. We have a responsibility to love one another just as Christ loved us so that the world will know. We have a responsibility to enemies. We are to love our enemies and hate evil. That's complicated. It's not easy. Because we're to hate evil. And we have to be very wise in how we deal with these things. When it comes to people you don't like... I just want to remind you, when, it, when it's about believers, you are not more important than believers that you don't like. You have equal value before God. 
and we should walk humbly with our God as we serve him. Let's stand and pray. Father, I just uh, want to pause before you and give thanks for the gift of your son and the promises that you've given us. We just acknowledge that we don't deserve your grace. We don't deserve salvation, that you gave it to us as a gift. It was by grace. It's your favor on our lives. And it was simply because of our trusting you and believing. And we say thank you. Thank you that we are in your family, that we've been placed into the body of Christ, that we are citizens of heaven, that we have eternal life, and that our sins are forgiven. Thank you that the Holy Spirit lives in us, that you've adopted us as sons. Thank you for the work of our salvation. Thank you for redemption, that you paid the price for us. And God, may that just cause us to love you and to walk humbly with you. For Jesus' sake, amen.